Hello, and welcome to Banking Transform. I'm your host, Jim Roos, owner and CEO of the Digital Banking Report and publisher of the financial brand. In the past decade, the marketplace has seen the development of more banking competitors than in the previous 100 years. From solution-specific financial technology firms like Stripe and Robinhood, to digital-first neobanks like Revolut and Monzo, the marketplace has seen entries of all types and sizes. But with COVID-19 impacting the funding availability to fintech firms that do not generate operating revenues yet, is there room for new fintech solutions? More importantly, what will happen to those firms that do not yet have scale? Today, we are joined by Anthony Thompson, serial entrepreneur and founder of three challenger banks, Metro Bank and Adam Bank in the UK, and most recently, 86400 in Australia. Rather than triple down on a single banking concept, each challenger bank from Thompson has been an iteration that mirrors the evolution of consumer banking needs. In this show, Thompson discusses his journey as well as how fintech firms can survive in a post-COVID-19 world. Welcome to the show, Anthony. It's been a while since we've last crossed paths. I think uh, the last time we spent time together was in an airport lounge in Bahrain discussing your amazing journey of building not one, but at that point it was two, but now it's three banking organizations from scratch, uh, Metro Bank and Adam Bank in the UK, and your newest venture, 86400 in Australia. What has possessed you to build three different challenger banks, and how did each organization differ? Well, indeed, if you count our meeting in Bahrain, uh, Jim, you could say it's three and a half because I... Yeah, you're in the process. I sit on the advisory board of uh, ELA Bank, which is the uh, mobile bank delivered by uh, the Arab Banking Corporation. So what got me started? Well, I think as you as you just mentioned, I'm a marketer by background and quite a traditional marketer. So I look at market data to find an insight that drives an opportunity. So a lot of my time is spent looking at market data. And back in the early 2000s, all the market data told me that what customers wanted from a bank was an amalgam of service and convenience, um, the ability to access advice uh, and rate. But when one looked at the banks in the UK, the only thing they seemed to think that mattered was rate. Uh, I'd seen a really interesting model in the US called Commerce Bank. So in short, we took that model and we brought it to the UK and launched it as Metro Bank. Completely different to anything in the UK, long opening hours, seven days a week, real commitment to customer service. All the things I believed in as a marketer. And uh, as you know, Metro was, particularly in the early years, a great success. So if you move forward to 2012, so some six, seven years later, looking at the market data, again, I saw the most seismic shift in consumer behavior from traditional branch bank-based behavior to digital in general and mobile in particular. My colleagues at Metrobank felt that the branch strategy was the way forward. I differed with them. So I stepped down as chairman and left, pulled together a team, raised the money and launched Atom Bank, which was the first mobile bank uh, in Europe. Atom has been very successful. And about uh, two years ago, 
three years ago, I sat down with my wife and said, what do we want to do for the rest of our lives? She said, how about moving to Australia? Uh, I didn't realize she actually meant both of us. I thought she was just sending me. <laughs> we moved to Australia um, 18 months ago. I spent a year before that looking at the market, met some great people who had a very clear vision to create a mobile bank, had a lot of resources, capital, people. They wanted to build a mobile bank, but had never done it before. I'd done it a couple of times. So we came together and that led to the launch middle of last year of 86400, which is Australia's uh, newest digital bank and first smart bank. Where do you get the name 86400? I'd love to say it was my brilliant idea, but of course it wasn't. We were in a planning meeting about two miles from where I sit in a little resort called Kuji with our team, very small team at the time, about a dozen people. We were talking about our values, about our vision and how we wanted that to be articulated through our name. And one of our engineers said, well, what are we trying to do? We said, well, we want to give Australians control of their money every second of every minute of every day. And he said, 86,400. And we said, well, what's that? And he said, well, it's a number of seconds in a day. And it was just such a great idea. And it just shows that no one has a monopoly on, on good ideas. It wasn't a marketer who came up with it. It was an engineer. But we tested it. It resonated very well with our prospective audience. Uh, and that's who we are. Australia has a legacy of some pretty aggressive legacy financial institutions that have used modern technology fairly well, as well as being the home to some very impressive neobanks, including a number of recent entries, including yourself. How do you differentiate your new organization from the four big boys in the market, as well as the uh, newer fintech firms that get on your way of the journey? That's a great question. I think it, taking it in two parts. The first part, how do you differentiate from the big banks? The big banks globally have some real structural issues. And I know on other podcasts that I've listened to from you, uh, this has been discussed before, so I'll, I'll cover it very briefly. They tend to be branch-based, so they have real estate that nobody uses in places that nobody goes. They have technology that was built often 30, 40, 50 years ago. And yes, to your point, they have introduced new technology, but they tend to layer it upon the existing technology. Very, very few blanks globally have been able to make the transition from an existing IT platform to a new one. And the reason for that's not the existence of the technology. There's some great technology out there. As, as you might recall, I sat on the UK board of Fiserv, so I know that the technology exists. The challenge has been in the data migration and pretty much everyone that's failed has been in its inability to successfully migrate data from old systems. So banks have got poor technology platforms, they've got outdated real estate, they've got balance sheets that are predicated on making money out of the back book, which is clearly not good for customers. And they tend to have some cultural issues that have been created over their hundreds of years of existence. That's not to say that there aren't some great people working in some of those big banks, but I think they're constrained by a culture which doesn't really allow for innovation. 
So that's the opportunity, is to take market share away from the big banks. The second part of your question was about how do you differentiate yourself from other new entrants? And I've seen that in the UK, I've seen it in the Middle East, I've seen it here in Australia. And of course, the dirty little secret of neobanks is everybody talks about doing something slightly different. But in essence, everybody's doing the same thing. They're taking modern technology and using it to drive down the cost of doing business, to reduce the cost-income ratio, because in the future, margins are going to be compressed. So you need to have a very efficient business to survive. And then to use that technology to offer a better customer experience. So in, in essence, all the neobanks around the world are trying to do the same thing. What differentiates them, what makes some succeed and others fail, is not the idea, not the strategy, it's the execution. And to execute it, you need to have an extremely talented team with a relentless focus on delivery. Banks are expensive to set up, as you know. You can't just open a bank with a, a few million dollars. You need to build out the entire infrastructure from day one. Growing banks generally are capital consumptive. So those who succeed are going to be those who have the ability to execute to their plan and deliver. And you've done that twice. You did that at Metro Bank and at Adam Bank, and you did not leave because they failed. You left when they were on their high point, but you identified, as you mentioned, market opportunities that said, you know what? It's sometimes easier to build from scratch than it is to change legacy thinking, even if that legacy thinking is not all that old. I mean, Adam Bank is a new financial institution. Metro Bank is a new financial institution. But how do you build scale, trust, and brand recognition in a marketplace that is, you know, half the size of the UK, but also has so much competition? There's an inherent assumption in your question that the big banks have trust and brand recognition already, which is a point I would challenge. I think most people confuse name awareness and brand recognition. So if you take the big four banks in the UK or you take the big six banks in the US or pretty much any territory and say to the average customer, what does your big bank stand for and how is it different to the other big banks? People don't actually know that they don't see any point of differentiation. So I think the challenge for new entrants is to make it clear what they stand for. And it has to be for the customer. And I've said before, and, and you're probably bored with hearing me say this, I think the big banks have lost sight of the customer. They think they're just in business to make money. And I believe passionately that profit is a byproduct of doing something well for the customer whether you give them a better product or a better experience or a better service. So I think in terms of the first point you raise, which is about brand, I think we are as well positioned as new entrants as the existing players to create a brand. They succeed in, they have greater name awareness, but there are no brand values attached to that in the minds of the customers. Uh, the second point you raise is one of trust. Again, this is something of a bet noir for me. And it's something I researched in great depth for the book that I co-authored and came out last year. And it came from this real anomaly, which is 
you ask consumer groups, do their customers trust the big banks? And they go, no, they don't. And you ask the banks, do your customers trust you? And they go, yes, they do. We've got this huge amount of research which says that they trust us. And you go, well, this can't be right. One of them has to be wrong. And there is actually a growing body of psychological evidence and data which suggests that, in fact, they're both right. Because there are two types of trust. There is cognitive trust, which is about competence. And there is associative trust, which is about intent. And put briefly, competence is about if my salary goes into my bank on the last Thursday of the month, will it still be there on the following Monday morning? Uh, can I trust a bank to pay my standing order or my direct debit? Can I trust my bank that if I go to an ATM, my card will work? Those are issues of competence. And the big banks are very competent. But in terms of associative trust, the key question is, do I trust you to have my best interest at heart? And the resounding answer from the big banks is, no, I bloody don't. I don't trust the big banks to have my best interest at heart. I trust them to take every opportunity to charge me a hidden fee, to give me a headline rate and work it down. And I think the big challenge for new entrants is to establish that they genuinely do have customers' best interest at heart. And I think if we can do that, we will establish a level of trust that has hitherto been uh, unseen in the big banks for hundreds of years. So this is interesting because that same thing happens in the insurance business where there's the same dynamic on trust where on one side, consumers trust that the money will be there when they need it, but they also believe that the insurance company's best interests are served that they give you as little as possible, no matter how much you paid in premiums. And when you look at COVID-19 and the impact it's had on the banking industry overall and what's going to happen in the future of the banking industry, have we really not, in a way, had a test of trust with regard to when things have been difficult? Have you been there to serve me as a friend and as a person looking out for my best interest when things are right now, in many cases, the worst possible way? Or do we feel in the back of our minds that the financial institution is going to get you anyway, where, yes, they'll let you delay your payments, but in some institutions, they're making you pay them all back in a lump sum when you won't be able to afford them anyway. So is this what the real difference between not only your organization in Australia, but a lot of the fintech firms and the legacy banks is, is that there's a real underlying problem around how they make money. I think that's a, a great insight, Jim. I've got bank accounts in the UK, I've got bank accounts in the US, and there is a huge disconnect between the person you meet when I go into a bank branch in central London or in Tucson, Arizona, to the bank's overall customer approach. The individual that you deal with tries to do the best thing for the customer, but they work within an environment that is structured so that it doesn't do the best thing for the customer. And I think this is a real um, challenge because we, we've seen it all over the world in crises where frontline bank staff are treated very badly, and yet they are the people who are trying to do the very best thing for the customers. I think what COVID has done 
is it has proved beyond doubt the case for digitization. Because in an era where people cannot access traditional means of interaction, branches, bank branches, coffee shops, retail stores, they've been forced to look at alternatives. And the clear alternative in banking, well, and I suppose in, in retailing as well, has been digital delivery. And it's probably an insensitive thing to say, and I don't mean it in this way, but I think the crisis has been good for digital banks because it has proved that they can deliver whenever and wherever people want their banking services without them having to go into or use the services of a traditional bank. Okay, so that being said, though, COVID also has, for to a degree at least, dried up funding for right now it looks like, all but the most stable and secure of fintech organizations. Would this possibly cause a, a fallout of fintech organizations right now have relied on outside funding to exist because they haven't made operating profits? But is it, does it also put many, to your point about the digitalization, does it really also put many of the mid-market legacy banks also on warning that they're going to have a hard time existing based on the structure that they have. Let me deal with the first part of your question, which is around the ability of new entrants to raise capital. And the reality is that if one looks at new entrants, and I've looked at hundreds, maybe thousands all over the world, and whenever I start a business, and I've started a number, as you know, over the years, the question you have to ask is, what is the customer problem that I'm solving. And there are so many fintechs out there that are attempting to solve problems that customers just don't have. So I think the ones that are going to get funded are the ones that are solving customer problems. And then the second question, the subset of that question is, is somebody willing to pay for that solution? Because there are lots of solutions out there to problems that I might have, but I'm just not prepared to pay for the solution. So what I think this crisis has done has focused the providers of capital on those businesses that, that are doing something different, but that have a route to profitability. And really, new entrants have taken one of two approaches. They've either gone the, in inverted commas, capital light model, which is, as I've said, we're not going to grow our asset book, which means we don't need to hold large amounts of regulatory capital We'll go in for transactional accounts. We'll build large numbers of customers. And at some future point, we'll use open banking to create a platform, and that will make us profitable. And there have been investors who have bought into that thesis. I, I'm perhaps a, a bit old-fashioned in the way that I think a, a bank or any business has to have a clear line of sight to profitability. And in banking, that requires the growth of, of assets. But of course, the growth of assets requires capital to underpin them. So that is a much more capital-intensive uh, model. And I think we are seeing a swing in, in investor sentiment from grow it and the profits will come at some future point to show me a clear line of sight to profitability. And certainly we're seeing that in the conversations we are having with prospective investors. You know, I've been at this question of raising money for a long time, Jim, over the last 
12 years, I've raised over a billion dollars and none of it was easy. And it's generally, it comes when people see that you have a clear line of sight to growing your assets, to developing a NIM, to making a profit. Everybody gets that in the future, NIMs are going to be compressed. Therefore, they want to see more efficient businesses that can make good margins out of thinner NIMs. Now, that's to the second point of your question. Will it be harder for existing banks? In the short term, no, because they have that good customer franchise. In the longer term, yes, because they have some systemic challenges around driving down that cost-income ratio. Yeah, and what's interesting is, underlying everything you say, and, and I'm a marketer by trade and, and historically and all that, and that's what drew me to you in the first place, but the ongoing theory has always been that from supposedly senior executive financial institutions, that marketing is a cost center. You've always seen marketing as a way to build a business model and the underpinning of that being that it's the consumer that's got to be served and that it's actually a revenue center if done well. Isn't that what really has made every one of your three organizations different from the existing models out there is that you found a problem to solve and you tried to build a win-win scenario as opposed to a win-lose where the consumer loses and the financial institution wins? It's kind of you say that I've been successful. The reality is that I've been surrounded by great people who have helped make that success. Perhaps we all share a similar outlook on life, which is to paraphrase one of your previous presidents. It's the customer, stupid. As long as you never lose sight of the customer. And I think so many banks do, and to my previous point, they think they're just in business to make money. They've lost sight of the person who actually makes them that money. The fact that you have to treat that person well. And to your point about marketing as a cost center, I think we're getting very smart today in our ability to use digital marketing to acquire customers very effectively. And we know what it costs to attract them. And the old Lord Leverhulme quote about half my marketing budget is wasted, I just don't know which half, doesn't apply today. I think we can be very good at, at the customer acquisition bit. Um, the bit that's a little bit more nebulous is around creating the consideration set. So getting your brand into the mind of people so that they will consider you. Because they need to be aware of you before they will consider you, before they will then switch to you. And I think it's there that people often go, oh, times are tough. We need to reduce our costs this year by 1 million, 5 million, 50 million and it's so easy to take a few million out of the marketing budget. But I think that's very short-term thinking. And again, it's very simple for me. I think the people who succeed are the ones who never lose sight of the customer and what they, the value that they're meant to bring to them. Staying on the topic of bank marketing, you published an excellent book that I love entitled No Small Change, Why Financial Services Needs a New Kind of Marketing. From your perspective, and, and knowing that most financial marketers will at least say that they're customer-centric and they believe in the customer, what do most financial marketers get wrong? They say it, but don't do it. They pay lip service to it. And I wouldn't necessarily blame the marketing directors for that. Some I would, some I wouldn't. But the concept of putting the customer first has to be led from the top of the organization. 
the chief executive has to genuinely believe in putting the customer first. And then that permeates through the executive team and then down through the organization. You could have the best marketing director in the world, but if you put them into an organization that just pays lip service to marketing, it's never going to work. So it's interesting because you also keep on getting back down to the quality of the people. I had Tom Peters on the show a couple of weeks ago, and he goes back 40 years in building the, the great book that we both read and, and grew up with, which was his book on management of people. And he, he talks about the fact that it's all about the people. If you don't have the right people in place, the organization is not going to succeed. And while the technology changed everything else like that, it really is all about making sure you have the right people. As you look at a post-COVID world, how do you think marketing will change with regards to how financial services companies use marketing? I think that there's a danger in the conversation that we're having is that we start to think of marketing as a department as opposed to marketing as a philosophy which drives a business. And you'll have heard it a million times. I often get asked, what is more important, your culture or strategy? And I go, you can have the best strategy in the world, but if you don't have a great team absolutely aligned around delivering it, it's never going to work. You could have a mediocre strategy, but with a great team absolutely aligned coherently around its delivery, and you will make a success of it. Then give me a great aligned team every day over a great strategy. You're a person who has transformed themselves over the years. And, and it's interesting because a lot of our discussions in the past have dealt with the fact that you keep on changing your colors. You keep on moving forward. You, you're not a person to sit tight. You're not a person to certainly rest on your laurels. And, you know, before our interview even started, you pointed to your outside and said, you know, you're keeping me from surfing. And that shows that uh, you're ageless in the way you look upon the world and the way you build your businesses. One last question before I let you go, is uh, you've built two organizations in the UK. You moved to Australia and built a, a really exciting fintech in Australia and wanted to know, do you have plans for what your timing is for coming to the US and building a fintech in the US? Well, as, as I say, <laughs> it, it's kind of you say it was me. It, it was a whole bunch of very, very talented people who did all of those things. I think that the biggest challenge to doing that would be that um, if I said to my lovely wife, I was going to launch another bank, she would probably kill me. <laughs> it would kill you as well. That's exactly right. In conclusion, just to your previous point, I had a, a mentor, a great guy who sadly now deceased, but I used to see him regularly from the time I was about mid-20s right up till he died about two years ago. And he was the most interesting person I, I ever came across in terms of he was always intellectually curious and right up to his mid-80s, whenever we met, we'd start our conversation about saying, what do you think we're going to do when we grow up? Something that has not changed. Um, in the years I've known you, you're mentally very young. We look back and you, you start thinking about, geez, as a kid, I didn't ever realize how old old was. And then you go, but that's not who I am. You know, I can just say to you um, as we close that uh, I hope you stay healthy and stay safe. Enjoy your time, and congratulations on another great startup. Always great to speak to you, Jim. Thanks so much.
Boy, I'll tell you what, it is always great to get together with Anthony and talk about his endeavors. As was mentioned, we last met in an airport lounge in Bahrain after an event and uh, spent three hours early, early, early in the morning talking about what was then going to be his new endeavor in Australia that he's now doing. But what great insights. I mean, at the end of the day, all three banks he established were to meet the unserved needs of the consumer. Metro Bank as a branch-based bank, Adam Bank as a, the first digital bank in the UK, and now uh, his newest endeavor in Australia, 86400. And it shows that the marketing undertones of what he's doing is what really sets him and his organizations apart. I think it's a good lesson for both legacy and fintech organizations today that at the end of the day, you've got to keep the customer happy. You've got to find more customers and build on the capital underpinnings of the bank rather than just trying to generate numbers of customers. Thanks for listening to Banking Transform, rated as a top five banking podcast. I genuinely appreciate the support you have provided since we started this endeavor. If you enjoy what we are doing, please be sure to subscribe to the Banking Transform podcast on your favorite podcast app. In addition, please take 30 to 45 seconds to show some love in the form of a review. It means the world to us. Finally, be sure to catch my recent articles on the financial brand and check out the research we are doing on digital transformation, retail banking innovation, the digital outcome experience, and financial marketing for the digital banking report. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to our producer, Leah Longbreak, and audio engineer, Sean Rule Hoffman. I'm your host, Jim Roos. Until next time, stay safe and stay healthy. The Jim Stroud Podcast explores the discoveries and trends forming the future of our lives. Brain-to-brain communication, robot bosses, microchip implants for workers, and artificial intelligence replacing human workers are all happening now. If you want to know what's happening next, subscribe now to the Jim Stroud Podcast.